Our scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 43. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you will still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they didn't grasp what was said. As he drew near Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Recently, I was on a Zoom call with a bunch of Christian leaders around the country. And you know, the conversation was what you would expect. Many of them were lamenting the difficulty of a COVID-19 world, what it's doing in their lives, their organizations, their families. And uh, most of the tone was lament, but all of a sudden one of the leaders kind of turned tones on us. He talked about COVID-19 and he described that, yes, it's been really hard, but you know, there's some really good things that are coming out of that, particularly in his own life. And he said something that really stood out to me. He said, you know, COVID-19 has revealed to me in very instructive ways, in profound ways, that much of what my life has been depending on, many of the props I found security and safety and love have really been eroded away. And that grabbed me because this leader was not minimizing in any way the challenges of a COVID-19 world that we're all facing. But I thought he provided some helpful insight to all of us in the midst of a global pandemic. Now, isn't it true that COVID-19 has disrupted our lives in so many ways? 
But we must remember, it has not disrupted God's sovereignty. COVID-19 has shut down businesses, yes, but it has not shut down the kingdom of God. COVID-19 has kept many of us apart, but it has not kept us from God's manifest and tender and caring presence. COVID-19 has frustrated us, hasn't it? It has fatigued us, but it has not frustrated God's good and sovereign plan for your life, my life, and the world. And as challenging as COVID-19 is in the world, it is really not what keeps us from experiencing the truly good life. So what is that? What keeps us from experiencing the truly good life? That life, that full life, that encompasses the full range of human emotions and experience from the lowest valleys of despair in our lives to the highest mountaintops of celebration. It is a life that we find that we are never truly alone. It is one of true happiness, love, peace, and beauty and joy. And it is experienced only and fully in a growing and intimate relationship with Jesus. This is what we find out in our text this morning. If you have a text, open, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. Now, as a church family, we are in this amazing series uh, exploring the brilliant Gospel of Luke. And we have, I think, rightly named this series, Rediscovering Jesus' Kingdom. Now, isn't it true that the word kingdom is not something we use every day? But hey, you know, if you're in Kansas City, uh, right now we're pretty excited about the Chiefs' kingdom, right? The king's, uh, kingdom of the Chiefs is a, a very impressive thing, uh, selfishly I believe that, uh, in the world of sports. But Jesus' kingdom is even much, much more amazing and much, much more far-reaching. For Jesus' kingdom describes, well, let's just say it this way, his reign over all dimensions of reality. And with it comes this gracious, awesome invitation for you and me to experience the truly good life that is now available to everyone. And this is the theme of our text. Here in the first chapter, uh, or part of the chapter of chapter 18, Luke showcases the story of a widow, a tax collector, of Jesus receiving small children. It is a, designed to be a composite picture of the most marginalized or powerless in the first century society. And you will notice that Luke brings to us a literary contrast as we explore the second half of the chapter. We're going to see how Jesus' kingdom is available not only to the poor and powerless, but also to the powerful and the rich. And Luke presents to us in our text this morning two separate but very closely connected stories that help us to see what keeps us from experiencing the true good life that is now available in Jesus. And as we explore these stories, I'm going to explore them around two reflective questions. First, what gets in the way of us experiencing this good life? And secondly, what do we really want? So what gets in the way and what do we really want? First question, what gets in our way? Our first story begins with Jesus asking a question um, and the ruler uh, encounters this question in verse 18. A ruler asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit life or eternal life? Now, Jesus is encountering a very powerful person and he respectfully asks Jesus the question. Jesus will ask him another question, but he initiates with this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Embedded in this question is an assumption that the ruler is making. Somehow that eternal life or another way of saying it is the good life now and forever 
is earned or achieved by doing things or doing the right things. Now, you'll notice if you have your Bible open that Jesus' response to this question is both fascinating and revealing. And Jesus basically says in verse 29, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, Jesus' response can be confusing, but let me just say very clearly that Jesus is not somehow distancing himself from his own divinity. Rather, he is skillfully probing the ruler's present perception of who Jesus really is. And you will notice in our text that Jesus points him right away to the portrait of right living that is framing the truly good life. And it is summarized, uh, you can imagine as a good Jewish rabbi, that Jesus was, in the Ten Commandments of the Old Testament. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus doesn't include all ten of them? It raises our question. Nor in the order they are given in Torah. Um, what does he do? Well, he includes a few of them, and they most, fo uh, most incredibly focus on certain kind of patterns of family relationships, loyalty, and property. The idea here is smack dab where this guy's heart is, the greatest obstacles lurking in his heart, where he is attempting to meet all his own needs on his own. Don't miss that. Now, hearing Jesus, uh, this powerful ruler, verbalizes what we might call his self-righteous Ten Commandments resume in verse 21. He says, all these things I have kept from my youth. And rather than Jesus respond, respond in a way that, well, what about the Tenth Commandment of Covenant? He doesn't do that. Jesus gets right to the heart of the matter. And it's this guy's heart, his heart condition. In verse 22, Jesus says, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And, don't miss this, come follow me. This verse is a very familiar one for many of us, especially if we have read the Bible. But in many cases, it has been deeply misinterpreted and misapplied. Let me say very clearly, the repudiation of wealth and possessions is not a prescription for everyone, nor a life of material poverty a prerequisite for apprenticeship with Jesus or for experiencing the truly good life. That's not the point of this text. What is the point is that Jesus wants this guy and us to realize at heart level that the truly good life that we so deeply long to experience is not found in wealth or stuff, but rather in an intimate relationship with himself. That is, in following Jesus. So the wealth and stuff he is clinging to is a false and faulty substitute for the deepest relational intimacy his heart so desperately longs for. Now here Jesus addresses head-on one of the real barriers to the good life that is competing heart loyalties in and around and inordinate love of money and wealth and stuff. See, one heart condition around money and wealth here is not so much about how much we have, but how much of what we have has us. Money and wealth can and needs to be and ought to be stewarded well for the glory of God and the love of our neighbor. But it is, isn't it, often one of those great hindrances from many of us experiencing the truly good life in Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying, what can get in our way? Money and wealth can get in our way. It can fuel our pride that we don't need Jesus, that we can meet our needs all on our own. Our relationship with money and stuff can distort. Can it not? Can it not disrupt or crowd out or even perhaps destroy relationships with others and God? Throughout Jesus' teaching, as well as the entire scriptures, 
there is a central thread about the warning of the peril of an inordinate love and idolatrous pursuit of money and wealth, or stuff. And it is for good reason. The Apostle Paul points out in 1 Timothy 6.10 that for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In other words, what we understand is that few things are more alluring and seductive to our lives and our fallen heart than stuff and money and wealth. And the invitation to the truly good life, Jesus is saying right here through the story, is not found in possessions, but in intimacy with him. Now let's keep this in mind, because this is a theme that is woven through this story. How did this powerful ruler respond to Jesus? Very pointed words. Luke puts, us, puts it this way in verse 23. Notice, but when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Hmm. Now, while this very rich leader had externally lived an impressive life, I'm sure, Jesus looks to his inner world, and it's anything but impressive. In other words, he had much to live with and very little to live for. And Jesus peers into his heart, and he sees three big obstacles that are woven into the story. Let me highlight those briefly. First, this guy looks to his own self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. He thinks by his life actions that he can earn or achieve the really good life. This guy's great sadness and deep grief is the idea of the Greek word here is not just about his wealth. It's also the awareness that he cannot earn his way into God's favor and intimacy. See, a right relationship with God and the delight of his presence simply cannot be earned. It can only be received and experienced with grace and with gratitude. The second obstacle we see in this story is this guy has an inordinate love for money and wealth that somehow he thought could satisfy the deepest longings of his longing heart. See, what he loved most in life was his money and stuff and all the prestige and power and influence that came with it. The third obstacle we see is that he not only has a heart problem, he has a loyalty problem. It's not just love, it's loyalty, and they are tied together. In other words, he is placing his highest loyalty to his family and family wealth. Now, what do we mean by this? It's a bit more culturally encoded in the text, but Kenneth Bailey, who I think is the finest Luke scholar in this text, speaks with amazing cultural insight of the first century. And he writes this, No doubt he grieves because of his love of wealth, but a significant portion of that wealth is his family estate which is a visible symbol of the extended family itself, of which he, as a ruler, is a leader. So Jesus is demanding that loyalty to him must be higher than loyalty even to his family and to this treasured symbol. Hmm. So after peering deeply into the ruler's heart, I just love how Luke gives us a glimpse of Jesus' tender heart for this guy. In verse 24, you'll notice Jesus looks at him not with condemnation or even incredulity, but with sadness. Hmm. And then Jesus does something really, I don't know, it's kind of wild to me. It's both humorous and very sobering. He gives this rich ruler a sober word picture, or we may say more technically, a very small parable of a camel trying to squeeze 
itself through the eye of a very small needle. Now, what is Jesus doing? I think there might have been a bit of laughter there, actually. But Jesus' big point is when someone's divided heart is overly attached to wealth, it is like the extreme difficulty of a crazy big Campbell trying to go through a tiny needle hole. In other words, trying to experience intimacy with Jesus on our own merit or clinging to other things is impossible or near to impossible. So Luke ends this story, and you'll notice if you're following along your text, with this jaw-dropping response of the crowd. The crowd has a shocking response. And they say, hey, who can be saved or rescued? Who can have this life? And this reflects a cultural misunderstanding. And this was common in that time, that wealth and money and stuff was an actual sign of God's favor and blessing, not a barrier to it. And Jesus turns this cultural misunderstanding upside down. Luke also points to Peter. Don't you love Peter who always blurts out stuff? And which seems at first glance to be kind of a prideful response. He says, hey, Jesus, look at our exclusive love and loyalty to you. We've left everything, our fishing enterprise, our business, our boats, and we have followed you. Isn't it fascinating that Jesus doesn't rebuke him? <laughs> Sometimes Jesus rebukes him. He simply says, Hey, what you gave up to be with me, to follow me, whether it's your family or wealth, is nothing compared to what you will get back now and forever. See, Jesus reminds his disciples that in following him, they will find the truly good life that their hearts so deeply long for. That is to be fully known and fully loved in Jesus' tender presence. So what gets in the way of the good life? What gets in the way of our longing for the good life. Like the rich ruler, let me ask you, is it prideful deception of our own self-sufficiency and self-righteousness that somehow we can meet our needs without Jesus? How we bought into the deceptive idea that the good life is the self-sufficient life, a life without God rather than a with God life. So in this story, the rich ruler, we discover that the prideful self-righteousness Disordered loves around money and wealth and divided loyalties around family can be massive barriers in our lives. Experiencing the truly good life Jesus offers will mean for each of us to embrace gospel grace. It will mean to rightly order our heart loves and, yes, to maintain an undivided loyalty to Jesus as we follow him as his apprentice. I love Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase describes it this way. It gets right to the heart of the matter of this rich ruler's heart. And this is what Eugene Peterson says. He was holding on tight to a lot of things and not about to let them go. That's it. And it helps us ask the question, doesn't it, as we enter this new year and this month of January, what am I holding on too tightly to? So at the beginning of the new year, we often talk about resolutions. I don't make them, but we should be talking much more about New Year's reflections. Are there things or people or praise or prestige that you and I are holding on too tightly? Think with me. Are there dreams, desires, careers, pleasures, our image, brand, relationships, political or partisan commitments that have become just too important in my life? Anything, person or desire, that becomes ultimate, of ultimate importance in our lives, becomes an idol. 
and they compete with my love and loyalty to Jesus. You know, sometimes we understand that idols divide our loyalty. But you know, perhaps the most pernicious evil of an idol is it destroys our intimacy. The greatest obstacle for you and me to live the life Jesus has for us, the truly good life, is not so much really bad things. It's a lot of good things to just become ultimate. See, when we love Jesus wholeheartedly and we follow him fully, you know what that allows us to do? We can let go of lots of competing things, even good things, because he is with us as we follow him. Jesus spoke to the idolatrous, divided loyalties, particularly of money and wealth, when he said this in Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted. Notice that relational term. He will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So let me ask you a question I'm asking me, especially as I think of a new year. What really has become ultimately important in my life, in your life? What am I holding on too tightly to? What are you holding on too tightly to? Is it your job, your financial portfolio, your stuff? Is it a relationship, a spouse, a child, a grandchild, a girlfriend, a boyfriend? I love how organizational guru Jim Collins, who coaches so many businesses, makes this empirical case that organizations and businesses, that the greatest threat to them is actually not the bad, it is the good. And one of the things that Jim Collins says with such brilliant wisdom is that the greatest enemy of the great is the good. Now, that's only true of an organization that we may lead or serve, or a job we do. It is true of your life and mine. We get so wrapped up in many good things, and the danger of that is it misses the truly great, the most important things. Many good things we hold too tightly to, and when we do, the paradox, the irony, the pain, is that they hold too tightly onto us. And that means for many of us, one of the most important responses in this new year is to loosen our hold of things so they loosen their hold on us. Let me ask you, as you look at the year ahead, as you look at your life, what needs to get out of the way that is in the way in your life? What are you holding on too tightly to? Would you take time to assess that? Asking honestly, what is within me that wants to latch on? <laughs> that which is truly robbing me of the closeness of Jesus' presence. What clutter in my life is crowding on intimacy? You know, the writer of Hebrews speaks a lot about encumbrances that hold us back. Just sin, encumbrances, weights. And there are many things in our lives that are like that, aren't they? Maybe good things but they're just weighing us down. They get in the way of our growing intimacy with Jesus. 
our commitment to our church family and our love for our neighbors. These encumbrances may be many things. I don't know what you're wrestling with in your life. For me, it can be an overtaxed schedule or a too busy life or working too much or an overly technologically plugged in life or an overly materialistic lifestyle. The story of the rich ruler confronts us with this question. What gets in the way of us experiencing the truly good life? That's the first story. But the second story addresses another question. And it is perhaps the most profound question. What do we really want? What do we really want? In verses 35 through 43, Jesus encounters, again, think of the contrast, how brilliant Luke arranges this. Not a powerful rich man, but the lowest, most vulnerable person in the first century society. A powerless, poor, blind beggar. <laughs> Let's read this story, beginning in verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going by, and he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him, be silent. Or we would say, shut up, would you? <laughs> but he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, to understand what is going on here, we need to understand the literary progression of this chapter and what Luke is doing in the bigger picture of the gospel. Luke is telling us, explicitly and implicitly, that Jesus is now making his final ascent, literally and metaphorically, from Jericho to Jerusalem to the Roman cross that awaits him. Luke is actually very explicit of this in verse 31. On his way to Jerusalem, Jesus approaches Jericho. Now, you imagine in the first century, if you walk back into their shoes, if you imagine with me that the word that the famous rabbi Jesus is coming. So news spreads quickly throughout Jericho, and as was the custom in the first century, many from the city, the who's who and the who's that, head out to greet his, this VIP coming into town. And Luke tells us there is a blind beggar who's strategically positioned along the route. Now, the only way, if you put yourself in his sandals, the only way a blind beggar can thrive or even survive in this culture is if others have compassion on him. <laughs> and he's playing the odds. He needs a lot of people to encounter him. So hearing the many footsteps of the crowd that are going by him, he knows something important is stirring. He inquires, who's coming? And some in the crowd tell him it's Jesus, this famous rabbi from Nazareth. So the blind man is no dummy. He seizes the opportunity. And with a posture of desperate need and heartfelt passion, he cries out to Jesus, right? And in the text, Luke will remind us twice. Think of the importance of repetition. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Don't miss that. So the language he uses is messianic language. He doesn't say Jesus of Nazareth. He says Jesus, son of David. So he uses messianic language that expresses his eyes of faith that Jesus would reach out to him and love him fully. The idea of mercy here often has a familial, tender, feminist kind of feeling, a, a, a mom, a deep relational love. Don't miss that. And it's translated, mercy it can be translated different things, but it's a deep tenderness. It is deeply relational. Notice this is his first request to Jesus. And what is his deepest heart desire? That Jesus would reach out to him and love him fully. 
unlike the rich ruler, you'll notice in the story there is not a hint, not a sliver of self-righteousness or of self-sufficiency, but only of transparent, vulnerable longing and need. The large crowd tells the beggar, you know, shut up, you idiot, if I may just sort of inject that a little bit, but he refuses. And unlike the crowd who is irritated, if not angry with this guy, what does Jesus do? Jesus stops everything, all the people clamoring for him, and he reaches out to this blind beggar. He not only hears the beggar's words, but Jesus hears, most importantly, his humble, seeking heart. So Jesus, in the story, asks someone to bring him, right, to him. And Luke tells us that when the blind beggar gets close to Jesus, Jesus asks him a very important and profound question. Perhaps one of the most important questions Jesus asks anyone. The most important question, perhaps, he asks you and me. And it's found in verse 41. Look at this text. Jesus looks at him and says, What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Now notice, the brown beggar's response is immediate. It's to the point and it's to the, brief, to the brief moment. He says, let me recover my sight. Now notice, this is not the first request of the beggar. This is the second request. Don't miss that. And Jesus responds to his second request, saying, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well or whole. Not only did the blind man get new eyes, he did, <laughs> very quickly. He got a new heart instantly. Instantly, this guy is given wholeness, wellness. He's healed, but we must not overlook the fact that Luke places here what is most important. And often, when we see a miraculous healing, we miss what is to follow, and that is to follow Jesus. Notice he becomes a follower of Jesus. Luke is explicit about this. He is welcomed by Jesus to experience the truly good life that is only experienced in an, uh, in an apprenticeship with Jesus. We must not miss the relational reality of transformation, not just physical healing. Now, when we contrast the stories, as Luke wants us to do, the good life is rejected by the rich ruler, but the blind beggar accepts it. The rich ruler asks Jesus, what must I do? The blind beggar cries out, have mercy on me, or we may say, love me, Jesus, as I am. It's meant to be a tender moment. The rich ruler walks away sad, and we should be broken by that. Jesus is broken-hearted by that. But the blind beggar is filled with joy. While the rich ruler's self-sufficient and divided heart walks away from Jesus, who offered him the good life, the blind beggar's desperate-seeking heart walked toward Jesus and then followed Jesus. The rich ruler, Luke wants us to feel and own missed the good life that Jesus offered him. The blind beggar found it. He had been lost, but he was now found. Having been found by Jesus, he now becomes the seeker, 
of an ever fuller life, a more joyful life in and with Jesus. The question Jesus asked the blind beggar is a question I think he asked each one of us. And I ask you today, what do you really want? What do you really want? In other words, what Jesus is asking is, what is your heart seeking? Because all of us live ultimately from our hearts. And what is your heart saying today? Our hearts drive much of our life, don't they? They certainly drive mine. Priorities, my passions, how I spend my time, my money, how I navigate relationships, how I treat others. Where my dreams ultimately lie, what I love and how I love, where I put my trust, where I find my sense of security and safety, who or what I hope in, and perhaps as important as anything is what audience do I live before? So what is your heart seeking? What is it? Maybe many things, great accomplishments, self-fulfillment, comfort, pleasure, power, you name it, financial security. But ask yourself, now and perhaps this week, in the start of a new year, what do you really want? What do I really want? In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus gives us something really important. He says in Matthew 6, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. What is Jesus saying? He is saying seeking his kingdom means first and foremost seeking him, knowing the king of the kingdom as the highest priority and passion of our lives, to know Jesus fully and to be more fully known by him. Isn't it astounding when you think of kingdom, kingdoms? There are very few kingdoms that everyone can know the king. Yet Jesus' kingdom is available to everyone, to know him fully and to be known by him fully. So what our hearts truly seek is what we reach for. The blind beggar reached out to Jesus as he was walking by. And what is most important in the story is Jesus reached out to him. Let me ask you, who are you reaching for? You know, Christian psychiatrist Kurt Thompson reminds us that we know this from interpersonal neurobiology and all research, that as children we arrive in the world reaching out to the one reaching for us. The good news is that someone is reaching out to us. And notice where Luke places between the two stories a sandwich. <laughs> sandwich there between the rich ruler and the blind beggar is verses 31 through 34. And it captures Jesus' trek toward Jerusalem where he will lay down his life on a Roman cross to make an atonement for our sin, and he will rise from the dead, defeating death, our greatest enemy. He will make possible for you and me to experience, by grace through faith, the truly good life of intimacy with God now, now, and forever. It was the fourth century brilliant scholar Augustine who put it so well and timelessly, our hearts are restless, aren't they, until they find their rest in him, in God. The truly good life of peace, love, beauty, joy, is only experienced in a relationship with the one who is himself. Peace, love, joy, and beauty. The truly good news of the truly good life can be experienced now. 
and we're invited to experience it. In the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 3, we find, this is amazing, a first century church missing out on the truly good life because they were clinging to self-sufficiency, holding too tightly to stuff, you name it. And Jesus invites them individually, yes, but collectively to the truly good life found in an intimate apprenticeship with him. Individually, yes, and also as a spiritual community. Jesus says to you and to me and to our church community, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will eat with him. It's a picture of intimacy and fellowship and he with me. See, the truly good life is experienced individually and collectively in an intimate relationship with Jesus. Jesus is knocking. Will you open the door? Will we open the door? Jesus is reaching out for you. Will you reach out to him? Jesus is reaching out to us as a faith community right now. Will we reach out to him? Will you love the one who loves you, the one who will always be with you and always be there for you? See, no matter where you are today, whatever your life is dealing with, Jesus is reaching out to you. And the question is, will you reach out to him? The question Luke leaves us here with in these brilliant stories of Jesus' encounters is the question for each of us, will you be like the blind beggar or the blinded rich ruler? Having found, been found by God, may each of us become a seeker of the ever fuller, increasingly joy-filled life in Christ.